Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss the news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and let's begin this podcast with a few numbers. India has more than a billion mobile phones in use and comes behind China as the country using the most mobile phones. In reality, more people in India have access to a mobile phone than a toilet with plumbing. Here to discuss the implications of a connected India, the impact it has on the society, politics and economy, is Robin Jeffrey, an emeritus professor of La Trobe University, a visiting research professor at the Institute of South Asian Studies at National University of Singapore, and a member of La Trobe Asia's advisory board. He's also the co-author of the 2013 book, The Great Indian Phone Book, How Cheap Mobile Phones Change Business, Politics and Daily Life, which he co-wrote with Asadoran from the Australian National University. Thanks for joining me, Robin. Thanks for having me, Matt. So can we start with what the fast proliferation of mobile phones has done to India? I think it's been terrifically important for social and political purposes, certainly for some people, for economic ones too. But what it did do was allow a society that was still, when the mobile phone hit in a big way about 10 years ago, a society that was still only two-thirds literate. So Mm. about a third of the population couldn't read and write. And suddenly it became possible for them to use this wonderful thing, the telephone, which up till then in India had been a very rare uh, elite-owned commodity. You rarely saw a telephone in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and even into the early 90s in the houses of any but wealthy, well-connected people, usually either business people or members of the bureaucracy. The proliferation of the mobile phone since about 2004 has changed all that, and it's meant that even poor people today have mobile phones. As the figures show, there's uh, about a billion live connections in India at any one time today. The population's only one point. 2 billion, and you've got to allow for some being under 5 years old and maybe some 95 who may not want a mobile phone. So it it does mean that virtually every Indian, if they don't have a mobile phone themselves, has a friend who does, and you can get access to this very powerful way of communicating. And that's had big social implications and political ones too. Mm. means organization is much easier. Economically, um, it it's made a difference to particularly the mobility of workers. Poor workers now, I think, move around the country with a confidence that they didn't before. Now, that may not necessarily be a good thing, but what it does mean is that unemployed people in particular regions very quickly find out that there may be work going somewhere else. So we see flows of workers have grown remarkably from one part of the country to the other in ways that wouldn't have been common 10 years ago. I mean, it's happened all, all around the world that in the past 15 years, mobile phones have become a real phenomenon and part of mm-hmm. life. But when you've got so much of the country illiterate and such a disparity in, say, living conditions, there would be a big chunk of India that doesn't have any idea, look, one way to put it is essentially what the young people are going on about these days when it comes to mobile phones. And then you'd have some that uh, are younger that have grown up with mobile phones and are now becoming adults and that this is a big part of their connected life and it must have such a a disconnect in a society like that. Yes, I mean, the the little smartphones that Nokia was introducing eight or nine years ago, which allowed you to have a camera on the phone to keep all your photographs on it, to use it as a recorder, even to use it as an FM radio, that made a huge difference. That is, in terms of take-up. You've got lots of stories of older people whose... uh, 
relatives, younger relatives would be off earning money somewhere else and would be feeling very much alone. They now had access to a conversation with the young son or daughter in another place. They could send them the photographs and they could even be taught how to use the FM feature on their phone to listen to local radio. And there's a, a very poignant story that we encountered when we were writing the mobile phone book of a guy from eastern India was working in Mumbai and he had his mobile phone stolen. He'd lost all his contacts, but more than that, he said, I've lost all my photographs, all my family, all my mm. kids' photographs have gone. They were taken on this phone, I kept them on this phone, and they've stolen my kids' photographs. That's not a money-making thing, but it's an intensely potent social thing that you can feel connected in a way that you could not feel connected before. Your book came out in, in 2013. Have you found that things have moved on in, in just the space of that time? I mean, three years isn't a huge amount of time. But for a book like this, it, it could be completely out of date in the way that technology moves on. Yeah. I think the big move is to 3G, and, and what's going to happen is 4G. Mm. You and I were talking a little bit earlier about the latest statistics on Indian phone usage and the uh, Telecom Regulatory Authority of India June 2016 is uh, estimating that there are 134 million broadband connections now. Now, that's about 10% of all mobile phone connections are, in effect, smartphones, 3G mm. or 4G phones. And that number is going to grow hugely. And, of course, it's an even more potent uh, device for a, a literate and semi-literate audience because it allows so much more visual material to come down the line. Uh, it allows both the user to communicate outwardly, but to receive so much good material in terms of music uh, and particularly uh, movies. And of course, to interact with health authorities, with political parties, whoever you like, uh, the 4G function will open up a great deal. There's a lot of obstacles to be overcome in getting sufficient broadband to make the 4G potential actually work. Yeah. But as long as there's money in it, the big Indian telecoms will be interested in trying to do that, as three or four of them are in a big way at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Is it a big business over there? Wouldn't it be? It's it is. Huge, it yeah. is. I mean, there are still close to a dozen companies in the game, and the poor old government provider shrinks and shrinks and shrinks, yeah. uh, yet is called on to provide the basic stuff. For example, supposed to be providing broadband to every one of 250,000 local governments in rural India. Big ask. An awful lot of fiber optic cable has to be laid to make that happen. And simply on a numbers factor, the numbers in, in 2013 when your book came out was about 900 million yeah. mobile phone connections and, and now it's up to 1.2 billion. So, you know, it's it's gone up by in that time. Yeah, it's gone up quite a bit. I mean, certainly the momentum of uh, what is not so heartening in all this is that rural teledensity hasn't improved as rapidly as you would have hoped. Uh, urban teledensity is about 150 per 100 people. Rural is about less than 50 per 100 people. Yeah. So, you know, there are lots of phones floating around in families in urban India, not so much in the countryside. And again, that's a question of putting up enough towers to give people reach. It's also a question of income. And of course, there's a social element in this too. In some parts of India, there's a notion that uh, the phone is something that only men should have, that women should, only, should ask if they want the phone. So the phone has introduced a very interesting social dynamic into Indian families. The question has to be asked in every family, do girls get to 
use the phone? Are they allowed to have a phone? Should they be allowed to have a phone? In India, it's a very patriarchy-driven country. Is, is that kind of imbalance being redressed slightly in this? I mean, I know the mobile phone companies would love that market to open up. Yeah, I think that's right. And in some parts of India, even uh, four or five years ago when we were researching the book, in Kerala, the telecom plans that were being sold to the public were saying, this is the ideal plan for a woman because it's got this and that application that you can use for organizing your household, for ringing the fruit seller, to the grocery seller to bring uh, fruit and vegetables to the house. But that was southwestern India where women have had a lot more autonomy mm. uh, for some time. Elsewhere in the north, the phone is a real disruptive. It's a little bit like the Coca-Cola bottle in that... Uh, the, the gods must be crazy. The gods must be crazy. Yeah. It drops into a family and people have to ask questions they didn't have to ask before. I think many of the people who listen to this podcast will have seen the stories of villages and communities, particularly in North India, saying that uh, no woman under 40 should be allowed to have a mobile phone. Yeah. That's, uh, uh, that's going to be a, an offense in our community. Of course, the very fact that you have to assert that means that people are going to try to subvert it as mm, well. Mm. So. I've seen reports of items marketed as well, like uh, the mobile phone for women that comes with a panic button in India. Ah, yes. I mean, that's one that's grown out of the uh, terrible attacks, yeah. particularly in Delhi of the last three or four years. Similar attacks probably took place in the past, but weren't as widely reported now, partly because once such a thing happens and gets to a few members that something dreadful has happened, it goes nationwide through the mobile phone, through the digital age that we live in. Mm. The ability to expose bad conduct of many kinds, administrative corruption as well as physical violence, is just so much greater in this digital age with the cheap mobile. This rapid proliferation of mobile phones throughout the country, what's it done to the economy? I imagine a lot of people are making making use of the advantages that this kind of information can give and the, the connectedness nature of it. Yeah, I mean, one of the the nice stories that we, we wrote about then, and I'm sure it's been duplicated all over India many times, is of the very poor guy who uh, was doing mendi, that is hand painting, decorating the hand with henna. Mm. And that's something that's done at festival times, particularly at marriage times. Poor man doing it in the street for poor people for very little money, develops a clientele with slightly wealthier people. Somebody sees his work, says, gee, that's pretty good. They say, well, look, my daughter's getting married. You're going to do it cheaper than the usual Mendy person we use. Uh, will you come to our house? And out of this, he gets a mobile phone. Mm. He gets cards printed. And the last we hear of him in the book is he set up his own little Mendy college to teach others how to do it. So the mobile phone gave him the opportunity to use his rather good individual skill to tap a much, much wider market. And that's the good end of the mobile phone story, I think. You get the chance to build a network to, be, to be contactable and yeah, rather that, than just the guy who's in that market. That's right. And yeah. I mean, you're, you're not just in one place. You can be all over the city. You yeah, yeah. Begin to run a diary. And well, what about uh, in, in the case of the fishermen in, uh, in where is it, Kerala? Kerala, Kerala, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Kerala fisherman story, that's an old one. And it was picked up on, oh, probably 10 years ago. Kerala always tends to be at the forefront of these things for various reasons. Partly it's a coastal place where people move around a lot. Small-time fishermen who were really working often in two-person or even one-person catamarans up to two or three miles off the coast picked up on the mobile phone thing quite early on. The 
the coverage was good enough from towers on land to give them contact even a couple of miles out to sea. It allowed them to do a couple of things. First, a certain amount of protection because they were getting weather reports that they wouldn't otherwise have got. People Mm. were ringing them and saying, look, the weather's going to change. Get back to land quick. So there was a safety factor to that. But the other one was because they were small scale and they're three miles out, they may have a choice when they land their catch of four or five villages along that coast. With the phone, they were able to pick up on which village was overstocked and understocked. So they were able to get better prices for their fish. And that uh, seemed to make a, a big difference. It did as well, however, allow the bigger boats to go out farther, particularly as towers gained greater um, range, scooping up more fish farther out. So it wasn't a kind of unmixed blessing yeah. for the little guy, but it did make the little fishermen a little bit safer, I think, and give them a few more options. So that sort of information is just going to become uh, more accessible. I mean, business is just going to be booming through this sort of access. Yeah, I mean, certainly I think there are whole ranges of activity yeah, that exist yeah, course, today yeah. that weren't there 10 years ago. No, yeah. no question. Of that, yeah. I, I mean, but, but that's the same in any country. India, I suppose, is, is getting access to all this new technology. Parts of it are a lot further back on the development uh, yeah. scale. I mean, poverty is, is much greater. And the middle class in India is perhaps 15% of the population. Well, that's 180 million people. It's a, it's a big market. Mm. But it means 85% of the population are not comfortable middle class. There's something less than that. And that meant up till now that their mobility was limited, range of experience of a wider world was limited. And the phone is changing that and has changed it, I think, very dramatically because the phones have been cheap. The plans have been cheap and the actual box that you bought was cheap. That's the great challenge of 4G and broadband. It's one thing to introduce it. You've got to keep it at a price level where the providers can still make money but the mass market can afford to pay and to buy. Mm. The other, I think, important social thing has been because of the cheapness and the availability of the phone over the last 10, 12 years. I'm particularly interested in uh, Dalit people, that is, people who were once called untouchables. Now, untouchability has been illegal in India ever since independence, but nevertheless, it's socially widely, widely practiced, and Dalit people have a very rough time in many parts of India. And because of their poverty, there have been limits to their education to their ability to access media of any kind. Literacy has been lower amongst them. The phone's been a a fine tool for them. My friend and I, when we wrote the book, uh, argue that there was an election in 2007, that's Mm. before Obama, which was the first kind of mobile phone-driven election, certainly in India, and one of the first in the world. The party that actually won power in its own right in Uttar Pradesh, which is India's biggest state, was primarily a Dalit party. Now, Dalits in Uttar Pradesh are about one in five of the population. So they're quite a big chunk. But what the phone enabled them to do, they had some very powerful social organizations amongst themselves. But in the past, they'd communicated by bicycles and postcards and the occasional telegram. The phone allowed them to mobilize in a way that had never been possible. Mm. They built alliances with other groups that they'd never been able to do before. And they won a a majority, to everybody's surprise, in that election. There were two things going on. First, it gave 
people who already had a social network amongst themselves, but a very kind of difficult one to uh, communicate within, bicycles and postcards, it gave them the capacity to be electronic, to make that all much faster and more effective. But it also gave them first mover advantage. Nobody else had done this before. Yeah. Um, by the time the next election came round in 2012, the party was thumped. They hadn't been a very good government to yeah, begin with, yeah. but they were absolutely thumped because everybody was doing it. The classic example of that 2012 election is the young man who was leading the party that eventually won. He's on the cover of the India's leading news magazine, riding a flashy bicycle and holding a flashy mobile phone. Uh, so he's kind of put the two together. You know, he's going to go out and meet the people on a bicycle, but he's got the mobile phone and going to know where all his operators are at any one time. The current Indian Prime Minister, Mr. Modi, took it all up a notch or two. He took it up to sort of broadband and 4G. He's a giant on social media. Oh, is he not? Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. With the campaign, they had these hologram buses couple of hundred of them going from village to village. He'd stay in his office in Ahmedabad in Gujarat in hologram form on a stage in a village six, seven hundred miles away. Mm, but mm. now I'd go to see that. I've never seen that happen. That blew people's minds, you know, terribly impressive. And again, that kind of first mover advantage. Nobody'd yeah. seen it before. And it worked. They made it work. Has the playing field leveled out now? Is that the sort of thing that he's going to be able to spin on the next election? Or is everybody caught up with social media presences and yeah. being connected? And I mean, the hologram uh, technique had been used, I guess, by then elsewhere. Everybody now knows that you can do this. So again, the first mover thing has probably gone, but it will still be quite an effective way in India for the next 10 years at least to get into villages that are fairly remote with a show that will make people come out of their houses at night and uh, come and have a look. And of course, that's what you want to do during an election. Yeah. But even sending your message out on, on mobile phones, like a blast messaging mm. or, you know, sending tweets and getting your word out that way or messages on Facebook or other mm. social media channels, everybody has, to some extent, caught up with that. Whereas, yeah. whereas Modi made big advantages in it. The next election will be interesting to see if he's still got the message and the cut through that he had then. Yeah, I mean, th there's political questions there. Once you've had five years in the job, the shine goes off the apple after, Definitely, yeah. after a while. What I don't think does work and didn't work in India, as far back as uh, 2004, they were sending out messages from the prime minister on mobile phones in that way. That didn't cut it. We encountered stories of people saying the prime minister rang and I tried to talk to him and he wouldn't listen. You know, there was no realization that this was a kind of mass message call. It just, it came through as a nuisance call. And of course, in the old Indian charge system for mobile phones, you could often be hit for receiving a call. That may have annoyed people as well. The mm. possibility that this call, not only did they not want it, it might even have been costing them money. So broadcast stuff. I don't think his work particularly well. All right, so that's all the time we've got for the podcast today. Um, my thanks to my guest today, Robin Jeffrey, for your time. Here is your complimentary La Trobe coffee mug. Thank you. Thank you very much, Matt. I recommend these to everyone who can afford to buy one. <laughs> Too handsome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia, which now comes with coffee mugs. And the challenge is to get it back in the box again. You can find it on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please leave a review and thanks for listening.